All right, the first question comes from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. And then 14, is anyone among you sick? What's the connection between these statements and chapter 1, verse 5? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What's the connection? Okay, when we are going through any of these afflictions, as he began the book in verses 2 to 4, he said various trials, verse 2, various trials. The various kinds of trials or afflictions of life, whenever that happens, the asking God, that's the same as let him pray, correct? But also asking God for wisdom. And asking God for wisdom is twofold. How does God communicate his wisdom to us? The Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's how He does it. So we ask God, as I read your Word, please open my eyes to understand how to handle this affliction, how to interpret this affliction, how to deal with it, and how to understand it correctly. May I not doubt your love and concern for me, but may I understand your purposes in the affliction. That would be asking God for wisdom. And... Dependence upon the Holy Spirit to illumine us. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That understanding of the Word has to come from the Lord in the midst of, of affliction. So that's the connection. Is that what your question yeah, is yeah, asking? Yeah. And then the second yes. thing, uh, when you said this, just in commentating about it, about going to doctors, and you made the statement that they don't love you as much as you love you, right? So their concern for you is not much. And would you say one of the applications of the Spirit with the Word to us is in going to the Lord in sickness, in disease, is in that scenario, we're going to someone who loves us more yes. than we love ourselves. Yes. Right? And, yes. And, and wants genuinely better for us than we even want for ourselves. Yes, yes. So if it's true that the doctor does not love you as much as you love yourself, it's also true that the Lord loves us more than we love ourselves. And he knows what's good and right for us. So we should be content with approaching him and whatever his will is in our circumstance that we should embrace it. That we find... Is, that's your second point? Okay, that we find in 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh afflicting him. A thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. And he prayed to the Lord three times for it to be removed from him, for it to depart from him. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. And then the answer of God comes. The answer of the Lord Jesus comes. 12.7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. But he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. For power is perfected in weakness. That means the power of the Lord 
is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Also, Romans 8 specifically mentions the love of God. In Romans 8, 31 to 39, we'll read a few excerpts here. What then, 831, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? No one is so powerful against us as God is for us. So he will overwhelmingly conquer our enemies, whatever the enemies might be. If he did not spare his own son, but delivered his son for us all, 32 to 34, will he not also with him freely give us all things? Yes. Then what kinds of distresses? 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It says overwhelmingly. Overwhelming, that means his love is more than any human love to be able to conquer. Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Next question. Yeah, uh, could you talk about, so there are some traditions that would say we should never see any treatment at all for any ailment. <coughs> we should just have faith, just trust in the Lord. If we break our arm or leg or our arm gets cut off, we should just pray about it and not seek any treatment. So what's going on there? Could you talk about that? Yes, it depends on the tradition or denomination, if we may call them a denomination. Um, but to use two examples, um, the most common one these days is Pentecostalism or charismatic churches who uh, generally they teach that you should not be going to physicians. Now many of them do, but generally the, the theology is don't go. If you go, then you don't have faith. And they claim to have the Holy Spirit, but actually they have a deceitful spirit. They don't have a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would never tell them to do something contrary to the Word of God. Because if it is a sin to go to a physician. If it is a sin to use natural means, then Paul sinned in 1 Corinthians 5.21. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.21, when he said, no longer drink water exclusively for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, but use a little wine, he said. Right? So that would be a sin to use any natural means. They, they don't have a proper answer for those verses. Okay. Um, then there's another one. The Christian scientists. They are less popular these days. But the Christian scientists 
started in the 1800s. Mary, Baker, Eddy, Science and Health, and, and uh, Key to the Scriptures. She, her writings. She started the Christian scientists. As I say, they are not Christians and they're not scientists, but they call themselves Christian scientists with true knowledge about the things of God. They don't have that true knowledge or the true methods of healing. They believe that we are a mirage. We are a phantom. Um, in Hinduism, they call it maya. Everything is an illusion. There is no real, physical, tangible world. We think so, but it's really not there. So in Christian scientists who have that similarity to Hinduism and Satan, they say that our bodies are not really sick. They're not really physical. And even Jesus did not physically die on the cross. It just seemed that way, but he didn't really die on the cross, they say. Because he didn't have a body, so he could not die on a Roman cross. It just appeared that way. Like the ancient Docetics or Gnostics who said the same. So if Jesus didn't have a real body, we don't have a real body. So if you have a sickness, it just seems that way, but it's not really there. So do whatever spiritual things you must do, but don't go get physical health. Two examples. Okay. So, so on the one side, you've got just blind acceptance of whatever the medical community profession says. Put whatever in your body they tell you to put in, and trust them because they know everything. And they don't. People aren't thinking objectively, soberly, looking at the facts, doing research. And then the other side is just just trust the Lord, and everything's going to work out. Yes. And we should avoid both both those extremes. Yes. Then yes. another follow-up question: When he's talking about anointing with oil. Um, it seems there that it's more it's symbolic. I've heard people say, commentators before, that this would be like giving them an aspirin or some medicine. But here it seems to be more of a symbol that's being used physically uh, to teach some spiritual truth. So what would be the place for that today in if we're praying for someone in this situation? Should we still be doing this? Should we still, I think we should still be doing it. And anointing with oil, it represents the Holy Spirit's work and power in one's life. This was done in Mark 16. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. This relationship or, or this mention of the Holy Spirit, the reason, the connection to the Spirit, um, it says of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. In the case of King David, when he was anointed... King, when he was anointed, this is what took place. First uh, King, First uh, Samuel, First Samuel, First Samuel, sixteen thirteen. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Anointing and the connection with the Holy Spirit there. Um, I don't see how anointing is taken aspirin because every sickness in the ancient world, in the case of James in the first century, and even Mark 6.13, the disciples and Christ, every sickness at that point 2,000 years ago was not healed by oil. How could that be the case? Every sickness at that time was healed by oil. That would also contradict 1 Timothy 5.21. Use a little wine for the sake of your frequent ailments. Right? So, there's no way to say that, that just find whatever is necessary, like an aspirin for a headache. Um, What if it's not a headache and it's brain cancer? Aspirin doesn't solve brain cancer. But... It's, but still, for them to say aspirin for, uh, as a, or just whatever modern means, it doesn't fit the ancient example, and it doesn't fit the modern example. But they were primitive, right? We're sophisticated. So. They were primitive, we are sophisticated. Yes, that's typically how the argument goes. But I don't think any modern man has built a pyramid or, or, or built a ziggurat. <laughs> Built a ziggurat. Have any modern men done so? A pyramid or a ziggurat? How about having paint last for hundreds of years? On certain ancient um, structures, artifacts, the paint has remained, whether a few hundred years ago or whatever. It lasts for a long time. These days, paint doesn't last a long time. It's really a big deal if it's going to last you 10, 20, 30 years, but... You have to pay a lot of money for that. Correct? And then how about building an ark? How about building an ark to withstand a worldwide flood like Noah did? Any modern man do that? So the way that Noah did with the resources he had? No. How about a modern man? This is Genesis 4. Any modern, how, how many men, modern men, can make a pipe or a flute? There would be a few more who know how to play them, but even less be able to make them. Right? Right? The, in these kinds of musical inventions. Can any of you here in the room or anybody you know make a piano? Well, it wasn't, pianos weren't invented today. They were, they were built uh, a long time ago, right? And there's all, the kinds, all kinds of instruments. How about all the instruments mentioned in the book of Daniel chapter 3. All kinds of ancient instruments in Daniel chapter 3. Remember, the music was to play, and then they were all in unison supposed to bow down and worship the idol, Daniel 3. It mentions several instruments that are very difficult to make. But this was in 600 B.C. or 500 B.C. About somewhere between 605 and 535 B.C. That's when this temptation occurred with Daniel's three friends. So the ancients were more wise in many ways than we credit to them. All right. Uh, that uh, unless one has one more brief question, maybe. Yes. Um, when we <clears throat> we're talking about 
taking oaths and swearing in uh, Matthew 5:33. When uh, let me go there real quick. Matthew 5:33. In uh, 34, with the word but, um, is it correct? I haven't fully studied Greek, not yet, under your uh, teaching, but is that word, could it also be translated as an and or but, depending on the context? Yes. Yes, in Matthew 5, Matthew five thirty four, can the word at the start of verse 34, can it also be rendered and instead of but? Yes. So, given the context to show that Christ is not contradicting or opposing the Old Testament verse that he just quoted in 33, it would be better to say, and I say to you, more as an addition or clarification. Yes, and for clarification. The Pharisees and Sadducees believe. Yes, and for clarification because... He, he is attacking the false doctrines of the scribes and Pharisees. 5.20 mentions them, and then this discourse from 5.21 onward. Yes, he does have the false teachings of the scribes and Pharisees in view. And for clarification. And the word translated but could be rendered and. You have heard what was said, and I say to you, to interpret correctly, to understand correctly, the following. However, here again, this is a major and a very grave misinterpretation of Matthew 5, 21 to 48. People say the Old Testament had a standard of ethic that was low and inferior, but now in the New Testament, we have a superior and high ethic. And Old Testament low, New Testament high. So the Old Testament forbade Adultery, but the New Testament—it's more uh, severe. It's more strict. It forbids looking upon a woman, because if we look with lust on a woman, we have committed adultery. Okay. So the New Testament says that the Old Testament does not say that, which is false. The Old Testament says it in many places. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Exodus in the Ten Commandments, right. in Exodus twenty verse seventeen. Uh, Job 31.1, um, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Proverbs 6.25, um, do not let her entice you in your heart. Do not let her, her entice you. Let your heart go astray after her. So these are in the Old Testament. Um, that paradigm for this interpretation or the interpretation of this chapter is false. The ethic is the same. The morality is the same. Old Testament and New Testament, which is embodied in the Ten Commandments. Yes, Matthew 5 is his exposition and correction of the scribes and the Pharisees, not him asserting better and superior doctrine. Also, if you notice the people who say Old Testament had a low ethic, New Testament has a high ethic, they don't live with a high ethic, right. and, they, and they don't preach a high ethic. They just say it as a way to disarm us. They say it to disarm us, but they don't live a high ethical life. Not at all.
Okay, the last one. All right, uh, one more. Yeah, you're really quick. Uh, verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back. Okay, in the, gen- in, the, in the broad sense, the among you is the family of God, and in a more narrow sense, it's a lo- the local church context. Yes. What if that anyone is the elder teacher who's wandering from the truth and needs to be brought back? Okay. Thinking about, thinking about in light of Hebrews 13, 17, where you know, you're to obey your leaders and submit to them, uh, or, you know, I, mean, I don't know if anybody else has ever heard this, don't touch the Lord's anointed, you know, because the man behind the pulpit's the anointed man, so he couldn't possibly have wanted from the truth or be in sin and need to be brought back. Okay. I think it's contrary, if you read, if you read Paul's final exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, you know, there are going to be fierce, fierce wolves rising up among whom? Rising up among you. What do you, what do you? what do you say in response to those who say, you know, because of Hebrews 13, okay. it's not going to be the brother who's the elder or the teacher who's wandering from the truth. Therefore, they would never need correction. Okay. James 5.19, if any among you strays from the truth. What if the any is an elder or pastor a leader, an elder or deacon in the church. There is a theology that says that you are not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed. That we find in Psalm 105, verse 15. 105, 15. Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. And this was in reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, Psalm 105, 8 to 15. We just read verse 15. And Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. These verses, Psalm 105 and Hebrews 13, are among the verses used to say, you cannot accuse the elder or the deacons, the pastor, of any sins. Leave them alone. Don't bother them. Don't confront them. They are your shepherds. They are your pastors. Don't say anything against them. That's how they are interpreted. Well, what they, they fail to understand, one, authority. That is, we are supposed to from small to great. Children are supposed to obey their parents unless their parents say to commit a sin. Correct? What if the child is 10 years old and the parents say, when we walk into the store, I want you to steal thus and so, put them in your pocket, and you'll be okay. Just steal. Just take it from the shelf and steal it, put it in your pocket. You'll be fine. What if the parents say that to the 10-year-old? If the 10-year-old is aware enough and has uh, a conscience, he's going to understand what's going on, right? uh, Wouldn't a 10-year-old or 12-year-old know what's going on? Yes. So should he do it? No. He should say, I cannot do that. That's stealing. And that would be a sin against God and a crime. Okay? What if 
The husband says to the wife, remember the husband is the head of the wife. What if the husband says, wife, I want to go to the nightclub tonight. Let's both go to the nightclub. Let's go to the nightclub. Wife, what should the wife say to the husband? No, sir, no, husband. We're not going to the nightclub. It's a sin, and I cannot do that. I cannot go to the nightclub. What if the man is employed, and the employer wants the employee to commit some sin or crime? What should the employee say? I'm not going to bite the hand that feeds me. Is that what he's supposed to say? That's what they say all the time. They say that all the time. No, he should go and appeal to his supervisor, whoever is in charge, go there and say, this is a crime or this is a sin. I can't do this. I won't do it. And then deal with it as you have to deal with it, but I'm not going to do it. Right? Or what if the, the government says, church for the next 14 days is closed, illegal, just 14 days, just, you, you know, we, we have to offset this pandemic for just for 14 days, yes or no? No, the, the government has no authority to say, don't meet for church. Is, don't we have many examples like this? The Hebrew midwives said no to Pharaoh. They're not going to butcher the baby males, Right? Didn't Daniel's three friends say, no, we're not going to worship the idol? Right? right? Didn't Daniel say, I'm not going to stop praying to my God in my, his formal way three times a day. I'm not going to do it facing Jerusalem. I'm not going to do it even though there is a new decree that we're not supposed to pray like that for 30 days. He didn't, oh, he didn't say, well, just 30 days. Just 30 days, let the decree come and go. He didn't say that. Just let the pandemic come and go. He didn't say that. They didn't think that way. Because the, if the higher authority is sinning, then we are supposed to disobey. And that's even in the local church. Yep. Even in the local church. With the membership and the pastor, or the membership, elders, and deacons. It should also be that way. Didn't... Weren't the apostles under the authority in the temple and synagogue under the authority of the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the priests? Yes. Until they were expelled, they were under their authority. And it says in Acts 4.19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Acts 4.19, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. Acts 4, 19 and 20. Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. Normally, children are supposed to obey their parents. Normally, the wife should obey her husband. Normally, the employee should obey his supervisors, his employer, right? Normally, the citizens should obey the laws of their country, normally, right? But what if the superior is expecting sin? Then we say, we must obey God rather than men. Now, this, there are, um, there's a passage in 1 Timothy 5. So if this is done, how should it be done? 
First Timothy five. First <coughs> Timothy five nineteen. First Timothy five nineteen. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. The accusation should not be received against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. And the witnesses, what's the purpose of the witness? The witness has to bring forth the evidence. Bring forth the evidence to the parties necessary. In this case, first to the elder. First to the elder. And then it goes from there. So it should be done even within a local church, if there is sin in the local church. What we find, and since uh, the false teachers cite Psalm 105, let's also use the Old Testament to show that even in the Old Testament, they were confronted. When it says, do not touch my anointed ones, the anointed ones in the Old Testament were confronted. So do not touch does not mean what they mean, the false teachers mean by do not touch. Two examples, Micah 3.5. Micah 3.5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Micah is preaching against the prophets, the false prophets, supposedly anointed, supposedly in the ministry for the right reasons. Malachi, Malachi does the same. Malachi first is chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. In Malachi 1, 6 to 2, 9, he rebukes the priests, the anointed priests, because they were priests by Anointing the anointed priests. He says in one six, A son honors his father and a slave his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? O priests who despise my name. It's an oracle against the priests. Chapter 2, verse 1. And now, this commandment is for you, O priests, against the priests, because they're sinning. And the judgment, verses 2 and 3. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. And I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. A rebuke, a curse to them, to their offspring or seed. And God is the one responsible for spreading refuse on their faces. That is, the sacrificial animals killed, slaughtered for the feasts, their inward parts, the disgusting parts, the inward parts that are not used for cooking or on the altar, those inward parts that are usually thrown into the trash, 
in the trash heap. Instead of them being there, I'm going to make sure that they get spread and smeared all over your face, your faces. Isn't that what he said right there? Yeah. I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. This is a threat of exile. Just as it happened to the northern kingdom with Assyria, southern kingdom with Babylon, they exiled the people, they caught them in the middle of celebrations, and they um, humiliated them by doing this and also stripping them naked and making them travel long distances naked, naked, across vast territories, naked, after they put refuse on their faces. And you will be taken away, taken away into exile. Okay, so this is God against the priests by another prophet rebuking the priests. And we might say, well, he's not a priest. Well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were priests. And they had similar oracles against priests and against prophets, against the rulers, the princes. It doesn't matter. So there is a place to rebuke the leadership in sin, both political and religious, to rebuke. John the Baptist rebuked Herod for adultery, correct? So Ahijah rebuked Jeroboam for his idolatry, 1 Kings chapter 13. Nathan Nathan rebuked David, yes. Paul rebuked Cephas, Galatians chapter 2. So there's a place for this. Even Paul rebuked Barnabas in Galatians chapter 2. Did I say Ephesians? Galatians chapter 2, 11 to 21. Galatians 2, 11 to 21. Paul rebuked Cephas, the rest of the Jews, and even Barnabas. The encouraging Barnabas. Yes, Christ rebuked Peter. Peter was one of the 12 apostles. He said something wrong, so he had to be confronted on the occasion, in front of the other disciples. Because he said it in front of the other disciples, so he was rebuked in front of the other disciples. He didn't say, Peter, um, I love you very much. Um, I, can we have a private meeting first? Let's go, ha- go, go to dinner, and I'll, 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 ser- I'll buy your dinner and dessert, and then I have something to say to you. He didn't do anything like that. He just confronted him. Then and there. Christ to Peter. Does that answer your question? Thank you.